0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Wildscast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. The topic of discussion is, what does it mean to be part of the chosen people? Learn about that and much more right now.
1: Okay, so take a look um, at your handout. This is actually one of my favorite topics that I usually teach on the Israel trip. We are still discussing whether or not we are going to Israel this summer. Um, uh, Right now, it's not looking great, but we might be still bringing our fellows in August. We just had a meeting about this. Um, Birthright has unfortunately canceled much of their trips, but we're still waiting um, in terms of August. Yeah, crazy, crazy times. Um, Now, I always like to teach this topic when we're in Israel, when we're up north, and we're hiking around, and people can see how awesome the land of Israel is. And people could also see how tiny of a country it is. You know that you can drive from the north of Israel all the way to the south. Years ago on the MG Heritage trip, we used to bring our group Uh, also to the Dead Sea. So we would start the trip for the first couple of days all the way up north at the Golan Heights, right? That's part of our, what we go and look at, see the Syrian border. And then we all be, you know, enjoying the beautiful spas in the Dead Sea all the way south on the border of Egypt there. Well, that's where, um, um, that really hot place, I just forgot. Thank you, Yosef. I've got my nougal bar and I've had my glass of milk. I really appreciate it. Daniel Wallach, welcome. And you can see how small the country is, that you could literally drive in a few hours the entire length of the country. The width is even smaller, which is why uh, so many people are always opposed to transferring land um, because of how thin uh, uh, Israel is at its width. Um, It is the best country in the world, Joseph. Welcome, Jamie Levy. I'm going to make a little blessing over my lunch here. Thank you, Yosef. I really appreciate that. Um, It's a great habit to get into over Corona. I said to somebody yesterday, can you imagine how wonderful it would be if by the time this whole thing is over, your Hebrew was, you could read Hebrew fluently <clears throat> or you were saying blessings consistently or you were praying each and every morning, something you perhaps weren't doing before now you're doing because you have a little extra time. Who makes these nougat bars? They're just so good. Um, lots of protein, uh, gluten-free. What could be bad? with milk, it's unbelievable. Okay, so I'm gonna start our discussion now. By a show of hands, which I can't even see, how many of you sometimes cringe when somebody mentions that phrase, the chosen people? You are a member of the special club of people called the chosen people. How many of you? You can comment right now. Do you cringe, are you proud? Does it sound a little chauvinistic? One person even thought I've sounded racist. Is it? And what does it mean to be part of the chosen people? Chosen for what? We spend all this time talking about whether it's a nice idea, it's not a nice idea, it's inclusive, it's not inclusive. What does it mean? What were the Jewish people chosen to do Maybe if we can answer that question. Joseph is suggesting chosen to keep mitzvot. Okay. I don't think anyone would be put off by that. We were chosen to observe the commandments. Okay. I'm sure a lot of our non-Jewish friends can handle that. Wouldn't think that sounded chauvinistic, but they might ask, I don't understand how come you are chosen to keep mitzvot. By the way, is that true? Are the Jews the only people to be chosen to observe mitzvot? Everybody know, are non-Jews supposed to keep mitzvot? All right, so Jacqueline, oh Jonathan Brody, accept the Torah. After everyone said no. Okay, so we're going to speak about that as well. What's one of the beliefs that it wasn't so simple that God chose us because, in a sense, we chose God? Because we have in Midrash a very important Jewish tradition that says that God went to all the nations of the Torah and asked them, "Would you like my Torah?" And the reason we got chosen is because we said yes. Interesting. Let's see what else people are saying. Seven laws. Good. Who just said that? Let me give you credit. Um, Sharon said, it's true that non-Jews also are supposed to keep mitzvot, but not the 613. The Torah has 613 mitzvot. But there are seven mitzvot. Seven mitzvot that all people are supposed to observe. What are those seven mitzvot? Not to murder, to establish a court system, um, to believe in God, not to blasphemy God's name, not to limb, rip a limb off a living animal, like basic fair treatment to animals, um, not to worship idols, Seven basic laws of morality. Everyone, in a sense, is chosen, therefore, not just the Jews. But we know there was this one nation, the Jewish people, hey Adam, that were supposed to do more. Shabbos, Kashrut, the holiday of Shavuot is approaching a couple of weeks. So follow with me. Let's try to understand what does it mean to be chosen, and is it really a racist kind of elitist type of thing that we should be embarrassed about, or is it something we should be proud of and really share with other people, even our non-Jewish friends and neighbors? Take a look at the handout. Benjamin posted this handout in the beginning of the class. It's called The Chosen People. and Here's the one verse in the Torah, actually two verses where the Torah uh, refers to the Jewish people as being separate and as chosen for a special mission. Follow with me. Top of the page. And now, if you will listen to my voice, and you will guard my covenant, and you will be to me a Segula. Segula means a treasured people. Segula mikolamim, a treasured amongst all the nations. And the commentaries explain that all people are special to God. But amongst all the nations, there is a little more of an affinity, if you will, for the Jewish people. By the way, Segula was the name of the band that I, uh, the first band I was ever in, which I'm sure you've heard of because we were so famous in high school and then later in college. was called uh, Tohu Vavohu. It's actually a great name for a band. Tohu Vavohu is the biblical description of the world before it was created, chaos and disorder. That's the way the, the music sounded. And the next band I was in was called Segula, which means a treasure. It's a cool name, right? We used to do our mitzvahs and weddings. We did what we had to do, you know. So, um, if you would listen to my voice, God says, if you will listen to my commandments, basically, and you will guard my covenant, the covenant is the Torah, I will make you a special nation amongst the nations of the world. Now, this is interesting. Right away, we see something from that one verse. We see that our chosenness is contingent on something. What is our chosenness contingent on? You're not just chosen. You're special, and now you get the special privilege status amongst all the nations of the world. No, it's conditioned on... If you listen to my voice, and you guard my covenant, our chosenness is contingent on us observing the Torah. The covenant, the deal that God made with the Jewish people, that God would keep us as his eternal nation if we observed his Torah. And then you will be a segula, then you will be this treasured nation. So this is a very, very important first point that I want to make, which is that With chosenness comes responsibility. It's not just like, you're great, you're awesome, we choose you, you have nothing to do. No, it's a deal, it's an arrangement, it's a contract, if you will, between ourselves and God that was forged with our ancestors and that we have kept up to this day to be observant of the Torah, to guard the covenant. And then God will consider us a special nation, and then we will be this chosen people, but there's still the question remains, chosen for what? What will we be chosen for? And that's the next verse. Look at the next verse, Pasuk Vava, verse 6, And you shall be to me a Mamlechet Kohanim. Mamlechet is a kingdom of Kohanim. goy kadosh, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is God telling Moses to tell the Jewish people, you're going to be this treasured nation if you guard the covenant. And what does it mean? It means that you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? So think about this for a minute. What does it mean to be a priest in Judaism, a Kohen? Now I know the, the impression that we have of being a Kohen is a little different today than it was back then because the Kohanim were the ones serving in the temple. But they were basically the ones that were completely dedicated to ministering to God in Jerusalem, in the temple. What does it mean to be a Kohen today? And they had certain restrictions, and they still have those restrictions today, not to come in contact with the dead, can't marry certain people. We had this conversation last Shabbat in the Parsha of the week. And by the way, I'm going to be talking about the Parsha tomorrow in our lunch and learn great, great stuff. Beautiful Parsha. And this is interesting because if a Kohen's job in the community is to minister to God in the temple, but what else was the Kohen's job? The Kohanim were the teachers. They were the educators in the Jewish community. They were this sort of subgroup within the larger community that didn't go to work. They couldn't own property, own land. Uh, That's how they they were supported by people's charity, basically. It was called in Hebrew truma. Every Jew would give, would tithe their crop and give a certain amount of their crop to the Kohen, to the priest. And that's how they would survive. Because they were completely dedicated to the temple service, to ministering to God in the temple and to being the teachers and educators for the Jewish people. So if that's what the Kohanim were within the Jewish community, then what does it mean for the Jewish people as a whole to be a Mamlechat Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, it means that just like there's this one small group within the Jewish community who are the teachers for the rest of the people, the Kohanim, we are supposed to be the Kohanim, the teachers, if you will, of the world. What are we supposed to teach the world? How to make money? Well, that's unfortunately what so many Jewish people are known for. You know, we do well, primarily. You know, there are plenty of poor Jews, too. and. And it's a very, very difficult time right now, and if anybody wants to help contribute to Mazbia, which is a beautiful soup kitchen in Brooklyn that's helping poor Jews get through this period of time and other soup kitchens and the like, there's a lot of charity that's needed right now in Israel and in New York. But we're kind of known for being teachers of what? We are the people of the book. We're supposed to be teaching the world about ethical monotheism, about how to live lives, about values, that's what it means to be a Kohen. You teach others. And just like there was a small group within, there is a small group within the Jewish community of Kohanim that are supposed to be the educators for the rest of the nation, so too within the world of nations, there is this one nation, i.e. the Jewish people that are supposed to be educating and teaching values and ethics and morality and monotheism to the rest of humanity. I want you to be the people that bring my message, God says, to the rest of the world. That is our job. Our job is to bring the message of God and everything that it means to believe in a one and only God to the rest of humanity. It also says Vigoi Kadosh. Vigoi Kadosh, which means a holy nation, which the Sfarno, I remember somewhere here, right? The Sfarno was a great Italian Jewish commentator on the Bible. Second paragraph, a holy nation, a nation that shall never perish but exists forever. Isn't that interesting? That is something which is true about the Jewish people. Somehow we have survived throughout the ages. That irrespective or somehow despite, I should say, millennium of persecution and pogroms and crusades and, and inquisitions and expulsions and a holocaust, we somehow withstand the test of time the Jew somehow continues to survive. And the Torah is telling us why. God tells the Jewish people, you're going to be a goy kadosh. If you guard the covenant, and you're my special nation, you will be a goy kadosh. Goy is a nation. Kadosh, holy. Holy nation refers to a nation. Listen to what it says. He quotes the uh, Talmud, Ma kadosh olam kayam, afhem olam kadoshim. Talmud in Sanhedrin 92a says that... Um, as the Holy One remains forever, just like God himself remains forever, so shall they, the Jewish people, remain forever. And this was really God's intention when he gave the Torah, to grant them all the future good, had they not corrupted their ways through the golden calf, yada yada, and he goes on to explain, but basically, that's the secret to survival of the Jewish people. Do not think that our continued survival against all odds is some sort of fluke or coincidence of history. We are here because God explicitly told us that we that that if we enter into this covenant with God and we become the teachers for the world of ethical monotheism, God will keep us forever. We will be a goy kadosh, and you will be a segula. Although the entire human race, look at the last paragraph on the first page, the svarno again, you shall be my own treasure from among the peoples. The svarno comments: although the entire race is more precious to me than all other inferior creatures for he alone i.e. man among them represents my purpose right still you shall be to me a treasure beyond all of them meaning god is saying according to the Sferno, that even though human beings are more precious to god than other beings animals that doesn't mean god forbid we can mistreat animals it's one of the seven noah laws that every person has to be fair and humane in their treatment of animals, and it's an absolute Torah prohibition to inflict undue harm on an animal. It's called in Hebrew, Tsar balei right? But nonetheless, just like the entire human race is more precious than the animal kingdom, so too, you, the Jewish people, will be a treasure to me, says God, beyond all of the other nations. Now, why is that? That's because we occupy a very, very important position, which is to teach. Now, this is important, because there's nothing uh, elitist about this, if you think about it, and you sort of pull the lens back for a minute. When all of us have had teachers in our lives, and some of the people I'm speaking to right now, I know, are teachers. So anyone here that's listening, that you're a teacher, you sit in front of the classroom, or today you sit in front of a computer and on your Zoom class, and um, is, is, are you some sort of lording yourself in some sort of arrogant way? I am better than you because I'm the teacher. I'm in front of the classroom and you're just sitting in the classroom listening to me. Now what is it about a teacher that we listen to? Because a teacher presumably has something special and different, their teacher is trained to be able to communicate certain ideas and impart certain wisdom and knowledge to your students. Does anyone look at the teacher and say, who do you think you are teaching us? No, what do you mean? I want to learn. And, and this teacher has a PhD and blah, blah, blah. This teacher has a master's degree. This teacher has years of experience in giving over this information, this, this wisdom and knowledge. That's what the Jewish people are supposed to be. There's nothing elitist. There's nothing racist or chauvinistic about that. As long as we don't walk around saying, well, I must be better than you because God chose me as the teacher. Now, I would say that most of the rabbis, and certainly the ones that I have listed here on this handout, the Svarno, Rabbi Hirsch, and the Rambam, all subscribe to this idea that there's nothing inherently um, superior about the Jew, that we were chosen and no one else was. It's just that we had some sort of relationship with Hashem. If you look at the turn the page to page two, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, the great German Jewish philosopher, wrote, that God wanted there to be one nation that through their living the rest of the world will come to the knowledge of God. Take a look at what, I, what it's underlined that he wrote in his famous 19 letters, that God is the only creative cause of existence and that the fulfillment of his will is the only real goal in life. And this mission required for its execution a nation poor in everything upon which the rest of mankind reared the edifice of its greatness and power. Externally subordinate to the nations, armed with proud self-sufficiency, but fortified inwardly by direct reliance upon God, so that by the suppression of every enemy force, God might reveal himself directly as the sole creator, judge and master of nature and history. Meaning that the Jewish people are not this like awesome, powerful nation. Everybody's afraid of us when we walk down the street, right? No, but that we were sort of poor for centuries, we were really lacking a land and a government and an army, and people would be like, you know, they're not so, they're they're not so powerful, but yet they exist and yet they still contribute to society and to mankind, and this is supposed to reflect our belief and our reliance upon God. There must be a people. Look at the right-hand column where it's circled. This this must be a people then which acknowledges Hashem, the ineffable Lord of love, as the sole little Kim, omnipotent maker and judge, a people which recognizes God as the sole founder, guide and mover of its thoughts, feelings, words, and deeds, a people which knows that whatever it has, it is received from him, capital H, and with which all of its mighty might should live for him and for him alone. So this is very interesting. There's nothing that we, um, you know, did or said that sort of made us worthy, if you will, It's just that God needs a nation through whom he can uh, be manifest, if you will. God is supposed to be proclaimed to the world through the Jewish people. And if you look at the Rambam, Maimonides, on the bottom of the page, you can read this on your own. It's just an excerpt from Maimonides' laws of idol worship, where he goes through what uh, is prohibited under the Torah in, in the guise of idol worship. But he says, he talks about Abraham, and he talks about how the whole world, the whole world was basically worshiping idols at one point. Everyone, everyone. Until this one man came along named Abraham. Take a look on the right-hand column. And he, he I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he gives an interesting history of the way people were in the world. Everyone originally, originally believed in one and only God. And, but, and they understood that the sun and the moon and the stars were created by God. But they wanted to pay homage and show respect to the sun, to the stars, and to the moon. And little by little over the generations, that respect that they were paying to God's creations ended up looking at them as the ultimate creator. And then they went from believing in one God that was responsible for all these different forces of nature to believing in each of those forces of nature as a God. That the moon was a God, and the sun was a God, and the stars were a God, and everything was being worshipped until one man came along and brought the world back. And that was Abraham. Look at the right-hand column. In this man, the second paragraph, the world continued on its course until there was born the pillar of the world. And that is the patriarch Abraham. I'm reading from the writings of the great Maimonides now. When this spiritual giant was weaned, whilst yet in his infancy his mind began to rove hither and whither. I love those lines. Yet day and night... He pondered and wondered how is it possible for this sphere to revolve continually without a motive force propelling it. How does the world continue to revolve around its axis without some kind of prime mover? Since it's impossible to revolve itself. He had neither teacher nor guide, but wallowed in the oar of the Chalzis among brutish idolaters, his father and mother, and all of the people serving the stars. He among them but his mind was roving and seeking understanding until he arrived at the true path and perceived the line of righteousness from his own right reasoning. He perceived that there was a one God who governed all the spheres and created all, and no other God existed saved him. He perceived that all human beings were at fault and that the cause of their error lay in the worship of the heavenly bodies and the images till the truth had eventually become erased from their minds. 40 years old was Abraham when he acknowledged his creator. Now that he had been granted perception and knowledge, he began to debate and argue with his neighbors, protesting that they were not following the truth, breaking their idols and publicizing that there was only one God to whom it was meet to serve, and that all these images deserved to be destroyed and broken in pieces to save the people from error, as they therefore imagined that there was no God but them. Listen to the fascinating history of how monotheism began with this one man, Abraham. People forgot that there was one God, and they started worshiping the different stars until Avram came along and said, it's impossible for this world to continue to run in its regular course without there being one motive behind the whole thing, without there being one primary mover. And all of these different things, these are just creations of something greater. Now, if I asked you, according to Maimonides, therefore, why were the Jewish people chosen? How did it start? Who chose who, according to the Ramah? It was really Abraham that found God. It's not like God came along and hit Abraham over the head and said, I need you to believe in me. Avram started to believe in God, and he started protesting what other people were believing. In fact, his own father, Terach, was the largest idol manufacturer in ancient Mesopotamia. And then when God saw that Abraham believed in him, and that Abraham was willing to take on the establishment and argue in favor of a belief in a one and only, that's when God came to Abraham and said, Lech Lecha, it's time for you to go. You need to leave that place. I need you to make my name known throughout the world, and you are going to develop this incredible following. And you, all of us listening right here, right now, guys, we are... The result of that. We are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I ask you, who chose who? Did God choose the Jewish people, or did the Jewish people choose God? Now you could say that it started with one man, Avraham, and he passed this tradition on to his son Isaac, and he passed this, this tradition on to his son Jacob, and then they had the 12 tribes, and then finally we were enslaved, land of Israel, all of Jewish history but it's because we chose God. And there was a point later on when God then came to us and said, would you like my Torah? And what did the Jewish people say? Unlike the other nations that were presented with the Torah, we grabbed it. And we said, Nasa Venishma, We will do it and we will hear it. Which is interesting because normally Jews are quite rational. You know, okay, let me see what this Torah has to say. And let me have my lawyers look at it for a couple of weeks. We'll get back to you. Now, they didn't even look at it. Now, this was the same nation that God had already taken out of Egypt and done all these miracles. So you could say, look, that made a lot of sense, right? That made a lot of sense. God, you know, brought their oppressors, the Egyptian regime, the Pharaoh, to his knees. The Ten Plagues are splitting the Red Sea. And then God comes to them a few weeks later, that's what we're celebrating on Shavuot, and says, would you like my Torah? You know, Of course they're going to say yes. But they had a choice, because the Torah is not a simple and easy thing to keep. And that's one of the reasons the rabbis imply the other nations didn't keep it, not because they didn't believe in God or that the Torah was from God, but because it's not so simple, it's not so easy. And they didn't want to be restricted. But we know that a life without boundaries and a life without rules and laws is not a life that is redeemable. Um, because that kind of freedom is an unhealthy type. We want to be free, but we want to ultimately be free to be the best version of ourselves, not to do anything and everything, which ultimately, um, during which we ultimately lose ourselves. But let's get back to the chosen people. Is there anything that I'm saying here that implies any kind of natural superiority as a Jew over someone else? No. No we really chose Hashem, we have a relationship with God. And just like any relationship, it has its ups and downs. And if you ask a husband why he loves his wife, he's not gonna say, well, she's the most beautiful woman in the world, she's the most intelligent woman in the world, she's the kindest, I mean, if he's smart, he'll probably say some of those things. But why do any two people love each other? Because there isn't anyone better out there in the world, they found the best person. No, because they found the best person to have a relationship with. And that's really what we have with God. What we can boast of is not that we're better necessarily, but that we've got a relationship with Hashem that no one else enjoyed. No one else in the history of the nations of the world has enjoyed that. Jewish people, we go back. We have history with God. Now, why did that history start with God? I'm trying to explain, at least according to Maimonides here. That started because of Abraham. One man chose, and then his descendants kept going with it. And then finally, God said, "Okay, would you like my Torah?" And we also said, "Yes." It's a relationship. There's nothing. There's no sort of Jewish gene that only we possess that no one else did. Now, I am studying some other writings, more kabbalistically, mystically inclined writings, like the Bal HaTanya. The first Lubavitch Rebbe wrote this extraordinary work called the Tanya. And uh, Yehuda Halevi, who wrote the famous Kuzari, also wrote along different lines. And they believe that there is something about, metaphysically, that's a little different about the Jew. That the Jew has a greater ability and propensity towards spirituality. And perhaps according to those rabbis, maybe that's why we were uh, chosen, if you will, to observe the laws of the Torah, because there's something about the Jewish soul that is designed, metaphysically, in such a way to be, um, to be the perfect sort of combination, or recipient of the mitzvot. There, there is such a body um, of distinguished rabbis, more kabbalistically inclined, that believe that. Um, and i'm not telling you which rabbis are right which rabbis are wrong i don't know it's above my pay grade i'm just here to tell you what the different rabbis say the svarno and the great italian jewish philosopher the commentator that we started with here on the first sheets, and then the rev hirsch the great german jewish philosopher um, who talked about uh, the mission of the jewish people and finally maimonides they don't speak in terms of any kind of jewish gene something metaphysically different about the jewish soul from a non-Jewish soul that made us worthy of being chosen, they said we really have a relationship with God. And God, for whatever reason, didn't want to zap everyone with a belief in God. He wanted everyone to come to that belief themselves, free will. And he wanted educators. He wanted people to teach. And therefore, who is he going to choose to teach? Who are you going to choose? If, if, If somebody needs a teacher, they're going to choose someone who is knowledgeable in the subject matter, and is motivated and believes in the subject matter. And that's who God chose. God chose the one nation that discovered God through the first founder, Abraham, and who together with Sarah built up their son Isaac, who together with Rebecca built up their son Jacob, who together with Rachel and Leah built up their sons and created the 12 tribes, and ultimately the Jewish people dedicated to propagating This belief in a one and only. That is how we became the chosen people. There's nothing arrogant about that. That is simply our history. And it's not something that we need to apologize for. It's something actually that we should be um, proud of. That we come from a lineage. We come from a nation that believed in God and didn't just believe in God in an abstract sense, but wanted to live the values of ethical monotheism and accepted this, this role and this privilege of being the educators and the teachers of the world. And I think that's a very, very important way of looking at our chosenness. As I said in the beginning of our discussion, chosenness comes with a sense of responsibility. It's not like, oh, poof, you're chosen. Great, I'm part of the chosen people, but I don't do anything to to to, um, to express that chosenness, right? I'm, if I am a teacher, then where are my students? And do I know the subject matter to actually be able to share? Now, I don't think that the kind of teaching Jews are supposed to do to the rest of the nations of the world has to be in the formal sense of getting people around me and I'm gonna start convincing them that there's a God, they should start observing Shabbat and keeping kosher. We're not a proselytizing people, we don't believe in that. What we're supposed to do is observe the mitzvot and become learned and knowledgeable ourselves so we become people of the book. People look at us and they say, wow, that's an inspiring idea. That's a great way to live. I'm gonna try to learn from that. We know, and I can tell you as a parent, that the only way to really teach is through example. It's not by preaching. Talk is cheap. And our kids know it. And that's why Torah is mitzvah-centered. It's all about the things we do, not the things that we uh, say. You know, my kids have these like a up. If they hear me say one thing and do something else, forget it. And that's why our job as Jews is to live by the laws and the rules and the values of the Torah. Because when we live by them, we transform ourselves into more honorable people, people that can be emulated and can be looked up to, not as better, but as having a particular kind of knowledge base, wisdom from above, that we can bring into our lives and other people can look at and other people can say, wow, that's a great idea. Those marriages, those families that the Jewish people have, that Shabbat, right? And, and the goal isn't to to get everyone to keep Shabbos, but maybe because people see Jews observing Shabbat, people realize that maybe during dinner time I need to turn the phone off. Like those Jews have a 24-hour period when they do that. And maybe they see observant Jews keeping kosher. They realize that, you know what, not everything that looks good or tastes good should be consumed. And you could look at all of the mitzvot in the Torah. We only have to get, according to our tradition, the seven Noahide laws to be applied by the nations of the world. But all of the other mitzvot that we observe can be seen by our neighbors and can help really illuminate the world with the teachings of ethical monotheism. And as I say, much better than getting, you know, standing on a soapbox in Times Square. Nobody's in Times Square anymore, (laughs) but... But but when things get back to normal, our job is not to gather people around and say, Listen, this is what you gotta do, is to transform ourselves because that's the most effective way of influencing other people, and that is by living a certain kind of life ourselves. And that's what it means to be chosen. But it's a responsibility and it's a challenge. Because how can we really teach others if we're not super up on the material ourselves? What teacher would get up in front of a classroom? and impart any wisdom that he or she didn't have themselves, And that's why I'm always, always encouraging and trying to inspire my students and everyone that's listening to learn as much Torah as possible, and not just for you. Because every time you learn, we learn to live. We don't just learn in an abstract sense. Oh, that's a very nice idea, I'll go about my business, it's not not gonna change my life. No, Torah study is there to, to transform us and to make us better people. And when that Torah study transforms us and elevates us, it affects others around us. People see us. People understand that we are the people of the book and we've got this wisdom. We have to stop becoming known for simply knowing how to make a lot of money, but for being a people of ethics and morality, of being a people who carry God's message of ethical monotheism to the rest of the humanity and are responsible to help God make the world a better place. God purposely created an imperfect world and placed us within that world, gave us this Torah, and challenged us. How are you going to make this world better? And how are you going to elevate the people around you? That's what the Torah is for. But in order to do that, we have to first transform and elevate ourselves. And I think if that's our approach to chosenness, then no one could be put off by that. Because we're not saying to anyone I'm better, but I've got this Great wisdom. And look at look at the positive impact it's having on my life. Look at the positive impact it's had on Jewish people for thousands of years. What else? How else can you explain the, our continued existence against all odds if not for some kind of special ingredient, special, you know, uh, sauce that we have that really enables us to live in a certain kind of way and withstand all of the difficulties and, tra- and, and, and and challenges. And that's how we're gonna be able to get through Corona. Not because we're just surviving, but because we're gonna look into the Torah for wisdom as to what truly makes us happy, what truly elevates us and keeps us focused on a life of meaning and purpose, which brings along with it happiness. All of this comes from the Torah. And this is not something we should keep to ourselves. We should share this with our neighbors, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. To make the world a better place through the teachings of the Tsar. That's what it means, I believe, to be part of the Jewish people. I thank you all for listening. If anybody has any questions or comments, I've been doing a lot of lecturing here. Beautiful group today. Um, I will be meeting you back here, same time and same place, for um, Lunch and Learn tomorrow at 12.30. We'll be doing the Parsha of the Week. So beautiful Parsha. and we going to get you guys ready for the Holy Shabbat with a great, Torah um, for the Parsha of the Week. We may not be able to congregate in synagogue, but I'd like to prepare everyone for Shabbos by going over the Parsha of the Week so that we can all really uh, be knowledgeable, because that was really the whole purpose of taking out the Torah in shul and reading it publicly. It's to know the stories and to understand the deeper implications. So join us here tomorrow, 1230 Lunch and Learn. Thank you all for being here, and be proud of your chosenness. Have a great day.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, Please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.